that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, good afternoon or good morning, uh, Dr. Tuttle. How are you? I am fine. Good morning to you. Well, good. Thank you. So um, I wanted to get this podcast started by asking um, a little bit about your backstory and um, uh, how you got in, involved with healthcare and um, how you're, like, kind of your, how you got to where you are and where sure. you are now. Sure. Well, I, I uh, started off thinking I wanted to be a physician. My, my father was a physician. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away at an early age of 42, and I was a young boy of, let's see, 12. But I had the goal of being a physician and ended up starting in college as a biology major, but got to the great course known as organic chemistry. And that sort of put an end to my ideas of going into some type of clinical setting in medicine and was fortunate enough to hear about this, this field called hospital administration back then. And I was able through a, a friend of my dad's was able to get me into the current at that time, CEO of Baptist Memorial Hospital, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Frank Groner. And Dr. Groner was very, very gracious uh, to me with his time and told me about hospital administration. And so that sort of piqued my interest and I changed majors to uh, business, went to the University of Memphis, got an undergraduate degree in business administration, then went to uh, Oklahoma Baptist University out in Shawnee, Oklahoma, but all the schoolwork was done at then the Baptist Medical Center in uh, Oklahoma City to get a second undergraduate, that one in healthcare administration. Came back to Memphis in 1977 uh, after receiving that second undergraduate degree and started to work for Baptist Memorial Hospital as what they called methods analyst, which was a position doing uh, staffing studies and various studies across the organization. And so it was great, great experience. The then CEO, Mr. Joe Powell and Mr. Steve Reynolds, one of the senior vice presidents at the time, uh, I got to know both those gentlemen as well as Dr. Groner, and they all encouraged me to go back and get my master's degree. And so in 1980, I got married in the summer and my new bride and I went off to Washington University in St. Louis and got my master's in healthcare administration. 1982, came back uh, to Memphis to do what was then called an administrative residency and stayed with Baptist uh, in Memphis until 92, then was asked to serve as CEO of their hospital in Boonville, Mississippi. So I went to Boonville with my family from 92 to 95, wanted to get back to Memphis. Uh, there was not an opportunity for me at Baptist at the time. So I uh, located an opportunity as chief operating officer at Campbell Clinic here in Memphis. Very large, very progressive group of, uh, at that time, 33, I believe, orthopedic surgeons. So I worked with them uh, through, let's see, 1995 through about mid-1997. And then Baptist 
contacted me and wanted to know what I consider coming back uh, to their organization uh, at the corporate office as vice president. And after a lot of soul searching, because I really enjoyed working with the physicians at Campbell Clinic, I came back to Baptist in 1997 and stayed with them through April of 2019, at which time I retired. And so I uh, got interested in teaching, have been teaching at the University of Memphis for 10 years. I went back and got my doctorate degree, executive doctorate degree in health services leadership from the University of Alabama. So now I find myself teaching, which I really love. Well, you've definitely had an interesting career and uh, it's been very, it's, it's, it's nice to hear that you've played a role in a lot of different mm -hmm. things going from operating in a hospital system to teaching. It's, it's nice. Um, so could you describe, uh, from my uh, understanding, you've worked in a, with the bat with Baptist medical group, you've worked in a, uh, rural setting in Boonville and you've worked in, um, a very urban setting. Could you describe some of the challenges and benefits that you faced, uh, when you were in both of those environments? Sure. Uh, let me start with my urban experience, which was part of, at that time, Baptist Memorial Hospital, uh, located down on Union and Madison Avenues in Memphis, Tennessee, as well as on Walnut Grove, uh, where the Baptist Memorial Hospital is now. The medical center location during its heyday was the largest private hospital in the world. And so I had an opportunity to work primarily with a lot of the service departments, uh, facility services, housekeeping, uh, food and nutrition, audit, some things like that, got involved in construction projects, and, and really, you know, in a, in a major facility like that, you have uh, a lot of resources at your disposal uh, when you're on the administrative staff. But what I wanted to do also, at least at some point in my career, is get an opportunity to be CEO of a hospital. And so I approached uh, Mr. Reynolds, who was CEO of the system at that time, and expressed that interest. And one of the things I really enjoyed about Baptist is that if you expressed your interest many times, if they had a need, you would have that opportunity for your career to grow and develop. And so they asked me to go to Boonville, Mississippi to serve as CEO. I was the fourth, I think, CEO there in five years. And my primary goal was to to try to recruit physicians. And I had never recruited a doctor in my life. And I, I was talking to my one of my mentors at the time, again, uh, the gentleman, Dr. Frank Groner, who was so gracious to me. And he gave me a piece of advice where he said, uh, recruit the highest quality physician you could find because she or he is going to really set the tone for everything that goes on in your organization, your hospital. And so I, I went to Boonville, had a tremendous experience. You, you learn real quick. You don't have the depth of resources at a small facility 
that you do at a, at a large major urban facility. And so you end up doing a lot of different things. Great learning opportunity, great opportunity to, to make a difference. And you see firsthand uh, how important these rural facilities are to their communities, especially the emergency rooms. So, you know, uh, each, each of those opportunities had tremendous learning opportunities for me. Um, and I, I love to experience in both. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's, uh, you know, anything I would do different. Uh, I learned a lot, met a lot of great people, had the opportunity to also serve as interim CEO at several other Baptist hospitals, even during my corporate time. And when I did that, uh, even though I had a corporate responsibility, I was also interim CEO, say, at uh, Covington, where there's a Baptist hospital. It kept me grounded in appreciating all the hard work that individuals do in those hospitals and the, the work that they're doing that, quite frankly, allowed me to have my corporate position. So, uh, if you ever have that opportunity, I would encourage you to consider it. All right. I, I definitely um, uh, am interested in seeing like everything that goes on. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, from my uh, research, you've also been involved in constructing a hospital could you talk about that experience? Because I don't think a lot of people yeah. have had that experience, and yeah. um, I, I would re I'd be really interested to know like what what went on between when you were constructing a hospital and um, what steps did you take to build a hospital? How much does it cost? Who do you get in contact with? And how long does it take? And I'm just interested sure. to hear about that. Sure. Well, early in my career, as I noted, I, I had the opportunity to work with one of the senior leaders on construction projects, primarily in the medical center here in Memphis uh, with Baptist. And when I left and then was asked to come back, uh, the primary area that I would be handling was dealing with uh, some large scale construction projects that were being envisioned at that time. So I was brought back uh, to start working on the planning and the construction of what is now the Baptist Women's and Pediatric Hospital. I subsequently built uh, and worked with others, many others on the team, both within Baptist and outside of Baptist, the replacement hospital in Oxford, Mississippi, the replacement hospital in Jonesboro, Arkansas, the a new hospital in Crittenden County, West Memphis. And if, if you ever get an opportunity to do that, uh, I would encourage you. It is a wonderful opportunity to get involved with a broad range of people. Uh, everyone from, you know, physicians to staff and leaders within a hospital, clinical people, non-clinical people, you get involved with neighbors, you know, the neighbor relations, especially with the women's hospital was very, very important. 
to make sure we were sensitive and worked with the neighbors that there's some very expensive homes adjacent to that property. And so we worked very diligently with the neighborhood associations to gain their support and approval because you also have to go through a very lengthy approval process, both locally and at the state level. And so you also get involved with architects and planners, everything from equipment to long range plans and projections for the growth of the hospital. You work with interior designers, you work with community leaders, uh, for instance, the women's hospital. Well, the CEO at the time, Ms. Anita Vaughn, was a, a nurse by clinical training, and I had worked with her before. You know, we, she got a group of women to meet with us, to share with us what's, in, what's really important to women when they come to the hospital. And so many of their ideas, the architect, the design team, wove into the design of that facility. Same thing on the pediatric edition that was done for that facility. Um, and so when you get involved with construction, you know, you get involved with uh, some wonderful folks, but there's also some really important things you have to maintain. Obviously, you want to have a schedule and you want to make sure you achieve that schedule. Uh, that was extremely important on the hospital in Oxford because there were financial penalties that Baptist would have been assessed if we did not get the hospital constructed and opened at a specific time. The other thing that you learn very quickly is the importance of adhering to a budget. It's uh, a lot of money. Uh, hospitals, you know, anywhere from 350 million to 180 million to 400 million, all, all, you know, to all those projects are very expensive. And so you, you learn how to track those expenses, to control those expenses, to make adjustments throughout the process if you have to reduce expenses. You know, I would say to you as a student, you know, many, many students in graduate programs, you know, get involved in team projects and construction and running, you know, a, a big program like that involves a lot of teams. And so that's one reason you learn how to develop your abilities to work on teams. And so I would encourage you again throughout your time at University of Memphis and anyone else watching this, if, especially if you're a student to learn and, and develop your skills in working with teams. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and how long did the project take? And were you um, happy with how the hospital turned out in the end? Yeah, you know, it could, the, the entire planning process can take somewhere, you know, 24 months. When you look at the planning and then the actual construction, when you look at both those together, so they can go 24, 27 months. The actual construction can be, you know, 18 months or though, you know, they're about you. There are things you can do to fast track project to make it go even quicker. There's a lot of innovative things going on with architects and doing everything from 3D model to 3D graphics when you put on a a face mask, and instead of just looking at a one-dimensional drawing, 
where, you know, a lot of times it's hard to imagine the size of a room when you just look at it on a blueprint. Well, now technology is such you can put on these these goggles and you can actually virtually stand in the operating room or stand in the lobby or stand in the kitchen and look around and see how things are going to fit and flow and actually walk down virtually down the hallways of the hospital. And that really helps us all on the design team, you know, the physicians, the nurses, the technicians, the facility services people, the business office people to relate to that because all those people are involved. You know, your question was, I was I pleased with the results? And I would say unequivocally, yes. Uh, every project that I worked on with, with Baptist, yeah, we had our challenges. We always had, you know, some some speed bumps that hit during the project, but I think uh, we worked through those and the outcome was very positive. And that, again, you wanna make sure you select team members who not only are good at what they're trained in, whether it be a civil engineer, the architect, the designer, but you also want them to be able to fit in and work with you and work with the culture of your organization. You know, many times those team members may have to tell you something you don't wanna hear. And their ability to convey sometimes information that is not positive, but their ability to convey that to you to get you to make a decision is so very important. And so that ability to interface with the culture of the organization, I think is critical. And we were very fortunate that we had excellent, excellent team members. And I said, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The We were very blessed to uh, uh, be successful uh, through the hard work of a lot of people. Uh, you know, in any construction project, you have things that come up that are unanticipated, but I think it, it, is, it is at those times that uh, your teammates uh, work hard, come together. Uh, we may not always agree on the solution, but we put our heads together and we make the necessary changes so that the outcome will be what the organization expected and paid for. So. I think by and large, if you were to look and talk to people who are utilizing those facilities today, they would uh, say they are meeting the needs of the communities that uh, they're in. All right, that's that's good to hear. Um, and my next question is has to deal with um, what's going on right now in right now, as far as the pandemic, uh, the coronavirus and everything, what effect do you think that this pandemic has had on the healthcare system across America from your experience as like a CEO and what's going on in the hospital systems in rural, uh, rural areas or what's just happening just throughout the country? Well, there, there are so many effects that it's had, you know, both uh, short-term and I think yet to be determined long-term impact. You know, some of the most visible ones would be, say, on, you know, the, 
the telemedicine. Telemedicine wasn't new before, you know, it was around before COVID-19, but I think the COVID situation sped up immensely uh, the implementation and use of telemedicine even way beyond uh, some of the areas that, uh, that we had envisioned. There are other things, you know, uh, working from home remotely. When you look at certain hospital or healthcare staff personnel who may be more in, in clerical support or technical support areas that were going into a, a corporate office that may be working remotely here in the future. I think uh, the other thing that is so critical is, and this is not, you know, part of it is COVID, part of it is just a bigger healthcare landscape where you are beginning to more and more face the reality of healthcare disparities in this country and the need to address those both, you know, along lines of racial disparity, gender disparity, uh, sexual orientation, healthcare disparity, all, all those uh, areas have been discussed in the past, but maybe we'll take a new uh, focus uh, to really do some things that will improve that on a go forward basis. I think the, the last area would be, you know, there's been all this discussion and the, the sort of term that is thrown out there is, you know, disruptors, the, the Amazons, the Walmarts, the CVSs, whoever. And I think those organizations will continue to play a critical role in healthcare. And so as I, I shared with you as a student, you know, I call it chaotic and, and, and not in a negative sense. It's just that there's so much going on and this is a chaotic time in healthcare. But, uh, you know, I think there will be a lot of potential positive things that come out of all this. And it's a amazing time, especially for young careerists to be entering the field, uh, no matter where you end up. Uh, as I shared with you as a, as a student, when I left graduate school in 1982, the director of that program at the time told us as a class that to be successful, you need to do your residency, your administrative residency in a large teaching hospital. And that advice was very sound for that point in time in history. I think what's interesting now for the young careers, the young potential graduates, where my career path was a fairly narrow starting point. Nowadays, your starting point could be very broad in that you will look at, you know, why wouldn't you look at going to work for a Walmart or an Amazon or an Apple or whoever? And because there's so many broad opportunities to get involved. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that the, um, like the newer innovations, um, where, whether it's new players like Amazon or Walmart or CVS or new technology companies, they're really having a massive uh, disruption in the healthcare industry. Um, uh, and it's affecting a lot of people. Do you think that the, uh, like for example, Walmart and CVS 
Um, do you think that they're going to grow to a point where they um, compete with the existing model of a traditional hospital or a traditional clinic? Um, do you think people are going to go to Walmart to receive their healthcare services as compared to a clinic or a hospital? Is that going to be the new normal or the shift uh, when it comes to healthcare? I think when you say hospital, you really, you know, hospitals provide a broad array of services, obviously, you know, inpatient, med surge, acute care, surgeries, and very high-end tertiary care. Uh, I don't, I don't think, you know, Walmart and some of these others have an, have an interest in replicating those type services. I do think they will play a very active role in many of the services that are now being provided on an outpatient basis, and they're doing it. You know, Walmart continues to open up clinics throughout the country and uh, other, other organizations are doing likewise. And so I think the competition that a traditional hospital or health system will face uh, will be a different level of competition. You know, the, those companies like Walmart and others uh, bring uh, a lot of expertise. They also bring uh, a lot of capital uh, at their disposal to deal with, you know, new ventures that they want to get into. Hospitals, on the other hand, are, are continuing to face, you know, challenges on, on income and keeping, you know, a, a large hospital or health system viable. You know, you, you need the cash. You need the, the financial wherewithal to do that. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I don't think hospitals are going to go away. They're going to continue, I think, to consolidate but they're going to face new and varied forms of competition. And it's going to require hospitals become uh, more nimble to the market and what the market expects. Mm -hmm. And I also feel that a lot of like, especially during this time, a lot of rural hospitals um, <clears throat> I've seen in news reports are closing down. And that really poses an issue of the care that small communities receive, um, especially because it can be a devastating blow to people of the resident uh, of the community, uh, both financially speaking, because they potentially could have lost their job. And then also, too, they've lost their um, uh, their healthcare, their line to healthcare service. So it, it, the healthcare access gap becomes wider um what do you as far as independent hospitals or small rural community clinics go what do you think is the viable solution in terms of keeping them either afloat financially is it like are, are the, should they be looking for mergers and partnerships with larger healthcare systems or how do they sustain themselves going forward? You know, I mean, it's it's a complicated question. I, I wish I knew the answer. I don't. If, if I did, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd be on a uh, yacht somewhere enjoying uh, some great benefits of coming up with that solution. But I do know uh, firsthand 
how important those rural healthcare services are. Uh, I saw it. I saw people's lives that were saved because uh, they had access to an emergency room. Now, in many cases, uh, the patient that came to the emergency room, we were able to stabilize them, but then we would transport them to another larger facility if their care wasn't being able to be provided at the rural hospital that I was at. And so you, you, you see this situation unfolding. I saw an article today, I believe since 2010, I read 138 hospitals have closed across the nation, many of those in rural areas. And so you've got to ask, you know, would you go to a rural community without a hospital or without adequate health care services? You know, I, I could ask, would you go to a rural community without fire protection, without police protection? You know, health care is vital to those rural areas. And so there's going to be changes. You know, you know I don't think there's a single component uh, solution. There's a multiple facet approach. You know, telemedicine, telemedicine can play a role. There are other, you know, ways of using different practitioners, maybe, you know, nurse practitioners, if you're not able to recruit physicians to the rural community. And, and that's, that's a challenge. You know, there's a, there's a shortage of physicians right now that most indicators that they're going to continue to be, if not even get worse. And the rural communities uh, find that challenging. So I, I don't know the solution. I think it's a, it will be a combination of things, everything from smaller facilities affiliating with big, bigger organizations. You know, the old adage, their strength in numbers. Well, I think that can play out and is true in many respects in the rural communities. I saw that play out uh, during my tenure with Baptist on their administrative team, how some of those hospitals that became affiliated with Baptists were facing pretty, pretty tough situation. And through the, the Baptist organization, they were able to, you know, stabilize and sustain that hospital. And in many cases, even grow the hospital, provide new services, provide new facilities. And so it's not a one size fit all solution. It, it takes everything from the local citizens, the local government, you know, to work uh, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky issue. And I also feel that a lot of uh, people in rural areas, they're moving out of rural areas. So that makes it tricky in terms of you have a decreasing population in rural areas and you have a um, uh, it's it's hard to get healthcare providers to go to, in two two rural areas. Those two things combined is a is a very tricky situation. It is, and and I mean, I loved my time in in the rural communities where I participated. Uh, wonderful relationships developed, but you know, rural communities face you know not only the healthcare industry, but uh, in many cases, you know, a loss of of industrial jobs, you know, whether, you know, various plants that are, were based in rural communities have shut down and those jobs have gone elsewhere. And so when that happens, you know, that has a profound impact on the community, not just in the uh, healthcare part of that community, but, 
you know, other businesses who want customers to come and buy products and services. Well, if there are no jobs, you know, people tend to, to leave. And so uh, rural America is, is really a challenging time right now. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in, uh, I guess, switching gears a little bit, um, what role do you think like the, uh, especially um, in healthcare, there's a lot of innovation that's going on right now because of this, I guess it's maybe always been going on, but especially during this time, you have um, a lot of like, for example, wearables, uh, new medical devices, um, new ways to track and monitor your health, whether it's diabetes or obesity or what have you. Um, and how do you see those innovations playing a part in um, people's lives when it comes oh, to healthcare? I, th I think it. I think it will be huge, huge implications for technology, um, and especially, especially in the growing uh, senior population. For those individuals who are still able to to utilize technology, but in my, you know, I'm 66. And, uh, I, you know, the, the technology that's out there for me to use now to use a wearable to monitor my my blood pressure, my heart rate, you know, I, I can see the time and it may be even out there. I just don't even know about it where, you know, you can take finger tick sticks if I was diabetic or had an issue where somebody needed to do some type of blood test. Well, I can do that at home and that information is transmitted, you know, through technology to my doctor and then they can run the test and get the findings and all that and get back with me where I never have to leave my house. And so this, the technology is, is going to be huge. Um, when I teach in class, if we had been in class, I show a video from an old Saturday night live uh, segment where John Belushi and Steve Martin and Gilda Radna and they 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 talk about the old days of medieval medicine, you know, bloodletting and you know, toads and various herbs and things. And it's a comical little skit they do. And then I ask the students, well, did you did you find that sort of funny and crazy? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it was pretty realistic on how medieval medicine was being practiced. And I, I challenge the students, I say, when you become my age, I would dare say the type of surgery that is being done at Baptist or Methodist or Kaiser Permanente, whoever, will seem as comical as that skit is, because I think technology is going to just, just explode and change the way medicine is practiced and delivered. Uh, and it has a lot of potential impact. It's, it, it's phenomenal what's going on, things that I never thought of that would be possible. And so I think uh, it will be an exciting time for technology, but uh, I, I don't think it will ever replace, you know, the high touch of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've, um, I've seen, um, that, that's something I've seen, like some of the new technologies that are coming out. I think I was reading an article a few days ago where they had an ultrasound and you can plug it into your phone or tablet or whatever. And the image shows up on your tablet 
while you do the ultrasound. So that completely um, eliminates the need for an entire machine and a setup. And it makes like um, imaging, uh, uh, imaging way more accessible to a lot more people. Um, another thing that I saw was for diabetes, they had like a monitor where you just, it's like a sticker, you put it on your arm and it continuously monitors your um, blood glucose levels. Mm -hmm. And it's a game changer for anyone who's a diabetic. Um, and uh, even uh, it's cer certain procedures in, uh, I think, uh, radiology. I'm not sure about this, but they're using AI to um, uh, detect certain um, pathologies in radiology. So there's a lot of um, ways that healthcare is changing. Um, I just, uh, I think I, I agree with uh, part, part of what you said, like we also have to keep in touch with the, um, I guess the human interaction component to medicine. And I feel like during this time, as well as um, it, during this time, especially, but it's growing, it's going to a place where the human interaction between, I guess, the patient and the physician is becoming less and less. Um, that's just. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think uh, in our class this semester, I shared with you the video about Oshner Health system down in New Orleans and what they do with apps. You know, they have a, a whole area within their hospital that a physician can say, look, uh, Bill, we want you to go down and get this app on your phone because we need to monitor your your blood pressure because you're you know pre-diabetic, like you were saying. And then Oshner is able to monitor me uh, instead of me having to come back and, you know, two weeks, three weeks, well, they're getting readings from me constantly. And if they see something go out of whack, they can intervene quicker and help. So, I mean, you're seeing that play out. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's happening now and I think it's going to happen in, in the future. You know, your comment just now about imaging or ultrasounds, well, that sort of hits home. My, my son and, his wife uh, just shared with us a week or so ago that she's pregnant. And I mean, stop and think about it. Well, could it ever get to the point where a pregnant woman can take the ultrasound through, you know, what you just said and look at the, the baby, you know, being developed and growing? I mean, that's that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, I agree. It's, it's an amazing. But then the question also becomes like, with all these technologies, you have all of this medical information um, that's coming out of it. I think um, the question becomes, how do we best utilize this information um, to point towards progressive uh, steps in terms of healthcare? You know, well, what, one of the, the sad aspects of COVID has been, you know, the inability of family members and friends and loved ones of individuals who may be uh, in a end of life situation within a hospital. And you know the COVID deal has kept those people apart. And we're seeing you know hospital staff people, nurses and others, physicians, you know who who literally hold the hand 
of a patient who's who's dying. And so that import what we're seeing, I think, is a, a renewal appreciation for how important that human connection is, especially in healthcare. I've said it to you as a student, you know, I, I prefer to teach face to face. That just wasn't possible. And I can replicate a lot of things on a, on a TV screen that we would have talked about in class, but I have a very difficult time replicating what I, what I call the human equation, uh, our ability to connect face to face. And so I'm hoping that COVID-19, one of the positive outcomes will be for healthcare professionals and organizations to somehow rethink how do we how do we give out high-tech care but still somehow allow the literally touch point that many of us miss during these times mm -hmm. and there's a lot of situations where i've heard on the news where especially for patients that have serious cases of covid where they're isolated in terms of they can't even um, interact with uh, their loved ones mm -hmm. and it's heartbreaking. Um, and, I, and I understand like, you know, the reasons behind it, but, um, and there's also, I think a division between um, if you look at the, the people uh, in different areas of the, um, in different areas like rural areas or um, what have you, they don't, fully believe in healthcare precautions, such as wearing a mask, washing your hands. Um, they, there's a lot of skepticism towards um, the virus. And um, I don't know, I think people like should try to do a better job of acknowledging what's at risk for, just from the stories um, that they've heard um, <clears throat> and just try to do a better job of protecting not only themselves, but the others in the community yeah i mean it's 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 obviously a, a very important subject and one that is has some uh, strong supporters on either side you know the, the wearing of the mask not wearing of the mask and um you know it, it's i think you have an individual responsibility I, in my personal case i think i have a social responsibility that when I go out to wear a mask, not only to protect myself, but to protect others who I may be around. And, and, but we're seeing that play out and they're very strong opinions on both sides. And uh, it's, it's not an easy answer. We, we cherish our freedoms here in this country and uh, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. I definitely hope that, um, the, from the, I definitely hope that things will get better eventually. It's not right now, but hopefully, um, there's some positive news that uh, some of the major drug companies they've uh, invented a vaccine, which is hope that um, that this is going to hopefully come to an end in the next year or so soon. Um, when it comes to the vaccine. Um, uh, how do you think um, 
I know that they, the national, uh, the national government has a plan, but how do you, do you think that, um, healthcare, like frontline workers should get it first? Or do you think that it just, it should be distributed to, um, small rural communities or should it just be, how do you think, um, uh, that should go about or if you have any well, that's opinions? A, that's a loaded question. And, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm glad there's some people a lot smarter than me who are wrestling with it. But uh, again, you, you, you try to prioritize, you know, who, who's important. And, uh, and in many cases, you've got a lot of people who are all very important. And so I don't, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I know there are a lot of individuals on the front lines and it's it front lines and with the, within healthcare front lines with, interfacing with the public. Uh, there's, there's a lot of professions that are considered frontline. And do, do they get that first? I, I, I don't know. And, you know, um, I'm, I am confident that uh, solutions will be reached uh, as appropriate. It may take some time and it may take uh, some waiting. Uh, but I think we I have a lot of smart people working on it, but I don't have the answer to who should go first. Uh, that's that's a, a critical decision. I remember as a as a young child, a boy growing up here in Memphis, going down with my family, my older brother, younger sister, my mom and dad, to take a little white sugar cube about that big that had the polio vaccine on it. And that was a that was a game changer. You know, polio was an extremely aggressive, a serious problem in this country. And so I think in time, uh, science will prevail uh, on COVID-19. And uh, we just have to be patient. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I agree. And then there's also so many, um, I guess, disparities of um, it's affecting certain communities more uh, severely than others. Um, and that's just, it's, it's a tragedy, I guess. Um, well, I, I uh, had a minister friend of mine that we were talking uh, prior to a funeral of a, of a young child. And he, uh, I asked him, what, you know, what, what can you say? And uh, one of the things he said that uh, the almighty God, whatever your faith based background, doesn't waste a tragedy that ultimately there's there's good that comes out of most every tragedy at some point. And so I think there will be good that comes out of this covid situation. And one of the things that I, I noted earlier that I think covid has highlighted uh, very clearly is the disparities in healthcare, uh, especially mm -hmm. in minority communities and underserved communities. Uh, and you see it playing out so dramatically and, and COVID has brought that to our attention, maybe at a higher level. And the question still remains, what are we going to do about it? You know, we're going to talk about it or will there be concrete action that takes place to help reduce those disparities in healthcare, we've got a ways to go, you know. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that um, uh, 
the new administration, um, there should be a plan involved when it comes to potential future um, outbreaks and pandemics, how to control it, how to um, distribute vaccines or public messaging. Um, uh, and I think I'm hopeful for the future. Oh, yeah, I, I am, too. I mean, I, I, I try to, you know, live, live my life to the best is yet to come. And, and there are some very, very smart people around the globe, you know, working not only to identify solutions to COVID, but actually I've, I've read, you know, already working, you know, what what could be next? You know, uh, I think COVID um, highlighted how how we all uh, had become sort of accustomed to a way of life, but look how quickly COVID in a matter of months upended the whole world. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think we, we realize how vulnerable we are as a society uh, on this planet uh, that we need one another. And, uh, and it's through that need that hopefully solutions will develop uh, and that we will take action. I mean, at the end of the day, we can all talk about it, but you got to take action to solve it. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Well, um, those are all the questions that I had, Dr. Tuttle. Um, well, thank you so much for um, doing this podcast with me. Um, and hopefully um, things are better in the future. Well, thank you for allowing me to visit with you. I, as I shared with you as a student, I think this is a great idea. I commend you for doing it. And uh, if there's anything I can ever do, please let me know. And I hope to see you around the University of Memphis. All right. Thank you. You, you be. Thank you.